You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The film we are here to discuss is Saturday Night Fever. It came out in 1977. It was directed by John Badham. It stars John Travolta, Karen Lynn Gorney, Donna Pescow, Julie Bavasso, Martin Shaker, Barry Miller, Joseph Calley, and Paul Pape. The genre would have to be musical drama. This film was a basic cable staple during the 1980s and 1990s. Before networks like TBS or TNT started beating Shawshank like a dead horse, because Shawshank Redemption was on all the time, this was one of their go-to movies. It literally felt like it was always on between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. somewhere. Always when you're maybe a bit buzzed or just tired and you just want to wind down with a late night movie before you pass out. That was pretty much my regular exposure to this movie during that time, and I loved it. It ended up being one of my favorite films. Travolta was fantastic. The music, the dancing, the dialogue. You know, I work on my hair a long time and you, and you hit it. Little did I know, up until about nine years ago, however, that I had been watching the PG version of this film the entire time. Because I had bought the special director's cut Blu-ray several years ago. I never got around to watching it, because even as late as 2009, you could still catch this thing on cable all the time. But not long after meeting my wife, then girlfriend, back in 2012, I decided to put on the R-rated original as she had not seen it yet. So we watched it, because I wanted to introduce her to this great movie. And, damn, this was not the same movie I remembered. That basic cable version had some 70s grit and edge to it, sure. Some bad stuff happens, but it's implied and you're not so sure. This R-rated original, it was just nasty in ways that I was not prepared for. Shit was no longer implied. There were loads of racial epithets. It felt as if I had just popped on the original Star Wars, which I had watched growing up, and suddenly, out of the blue, Luke just started calling 3PO the C-word. It was just genuinely weird. And needless to say, my wife, then girlfriend, she was not enjoying it. And neither was I. I was a little put off. Tony Monero, the main character played by Travolta, he just came off as a straight-up racist, misogynist prick. Now, does that make the movie not as good as I remembered? Not really. Because John Badham, the director, was making a film of its time. This was the time of Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and Slapshot. Movies just had this vibe in the 70s. And rewatching it now, the way this character's acting, it makes the contrast between the genuinely breathtaking stuff that happens on the dance floor and the general gritty unpleasantness of Tony Monero's Bay Ridge existence all the more stark. There's a reason for it. Monero is an immature prick, but he's also surrounded by several other immature pricks, and he just doesn't want to be one. He sees his dancing, Stephanie, the woman he falls in love with, and even Manhattan, which he can see across the river. He sees all of these as an escape from his prickishness. Now, it's a cliched story as old as time for sure. But Travolta's performance, composer David Shire, the Bee Gees, and a load of clever dialogue from screenwriter Norman Wexler, 
they really make it into something more iconic, which really packs a punch. It's certainly not coincidental that films for decades to come would lift entire sequences and story beats from The Fever, as I'll nickname it. From Travolta's gilly-set Urban Cowboy, which just came out a few years later, it was kind of considered the Western version of Saturday Night Fever at the time, to Flashdance, to 8 Mile, even to Magic Mike, which would come out a few years ago. It all goes without saying, of course, that the dance sequences in this film are the highlights, and they are still next level. Watching the camera follow Travolta and Karen Lynn Gorney as they disco waltz to More Than a Woman at the studio, or seeing the long shot of the mind-boggling solo dance number that Travolta does to You Should Be Dancing, it's amazing. From what I've heard, audiences were literally applauding in theaters during the latter part, and it's still obvious why. You had an extremely charismatic star strutting his stuff, literally, and just the right director and the crew to sell it. And the right music, of course. Scoff about the Bee Gees all you want, but this remains probably among the top two or three soundtracks ever. And not just the stuff from the Brothers Gibb, but also from other disco legends like Cool and the Gang, KC and the Sunshine Band, The Tramps, and of course, a couple of really catchy instrumental jams from David Shire. It's all there on the screen, and it's all perfectly utilized. As for the rest of the cast, well, it's a mixed bag, if I'm being honest. Tony's friends are portrayed as pretty much walking Brooklyn stereotypes, and they all play their parts fine, I guess. But none of these guys are remotely memorable not even in the way we'd see from similar smaller street-level roles from that same era in films like The Warriors or Mean Streets or even Rocky, where even a smaller part could sometimes stand out. Of the cast, Martin Shaker, he gives a pretty interesting performance as Tony's older brother who leaves the priesthood under mysterious circumstances. There's definitely stuff he's hinting at under the surface, though it's never really explored. But he's an interesting character and it's an interesting performance. I'm uh, leaving the church, Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Even the church. Come the number one. I'm leaving the priesthood. Oh, come on, Frank. Don't fool around like that. Also, Donna Pascal does what she can with the extremely thankless role as Annette, a character who I now think was really given raw treatment during the third act. It's too much for sure, and no, it just wasn't as obvious in the PG version. And then there's the much derided lead female performance from Karen Lynn Gorney. Hmm. Yes, Stephanie, Stephanie Mangano is her full name. She would have been a more interesting foil for Tony with a better actress for sure. Her presence and her line readings, they almost hurt the movie as much as they're helping it. But let's give her some props here. She still has her moments. Undoubtedly, she really holds her own during their dance scenes together. And I'm guessing that's why Karen Lynn Gorney got this role. And she even delivers the necessary humor in her conversations with Tony early on. She sounds utterly ridiculous mispronouncing the word vivacious, but that's also kind of the point. Well, anyway, he comes in the office, right? So I just do a few errands for him. So he goes around, he tells everybody in the entire office, he says, I'm the brightest, I'm the most vivacious thing in the entire office he's seen in years. Oh, yeah. But still, if I were to recast this film at this time, I just actually rewatched recently a movie called Thank God It's Friday, which actually came out the following year, and it's also a lot about disco. And just remembering how good this actress's chemistry was with Travolta just a few years later in Urban Cowboy, I have little doubt that Deborah Winger, who was in Thank God It's Friday, Deborah Winger, she would have killed it in this role, and she probably would have raised the film to another level. Regardless, this film is still the Travolta show, and he delivers an impressive breakout performance 
which was deservedly nominated for an Oscar. He's funny, pathetic, charming, endearing, goofy, and intense, often all within the same scene. Now, if you could believe this, when this film came out, Travolta was being compared to a young Brando when this first came out. And that's probably a bit of a stretch, but there's a rawness there that you can't deny. You see it in that moment when he's sitting next to Stephanie in the park at the Verrazano Bridge late in the film. Tony just starts rambling in his typical Brooklyn manner with facts about the bridge to cheer her up, and it's working. But you could also see Travolta's eyes start to well up just a bit, as he's realizing that he is just as deluded about his bridge and tunnel aspirations as Stephanie is. It's a very touching moment, and it stands out as much as his moves on the dance floor. See how tall that bridge is? That bridge, that tower right there goes up 690 feet. They got 40 million cars going across there a year. 127,000 tons of steel is involved in that. The concrete there, they got almost three quarter million yards of concrete. That's right. The center span right there is 4,260 feet long. And with the on-ramps, it all together totals like something like two and one half miles. You know all about the bridge, don't you? Yes, sir. I know everything about the bridge. Bottom line, this is still a great movie. And both versions, the PG version and the R-rated version, they both generally work for the themes of this film, the themes that it was trying to convey. But honestly, and this is going to be a little controversial, I would rather just stick with the PG version moving forward. Sorry, I know that sounds kind of quaint and fuddy-duddy, but that's me. Sorry, but the quiet ending of this film, with Tony and Stephanie just sitting on that bay window, looking at each other after they've declared themselves to just be friends, and then how deep is your love kicking in? It's a sweet moment, and it just lands a lot more gently for me in the PG version, whereas in the R-rated version, now knowing more graphically everything that Tony has been a party to in the previous 12 hours, it feels much less earned, and his character seems much more irredeemable. So the PG version just works for me. Look, this isn't about revisionism, okay? This isn't about censorship, just to make that clear. Both of these versions were released in theaters. The studio released a PG version in theaters a few months after this came out because they wanted family audiences to see it. And the director was also on board with that. So my preference is the PG version. Sorry, I just can't unsee the version that I grew up with. Still a great movie. And now that brings us to the categories. The best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Woo! Now, wow, take your pick. Take your pick. Because the reason this film works so well is literally 50% music. This film just has a killer soundtrack. As I said, one of the best ever. Even the non-BG stuff is impressively used throughout. But if the use of one song stands out the most, it has to be You Should Be Dancing. This is the song playing while Tony does his show-stopping solo dance. This might even be the best needle drop of the 1970s for any film. So it's got to be You Should Be Dancing. That brings us to the next category, Wasted Talent. This would be the most underutilized talent who is involved with the film. This is kind of a small, obscure one, but if you've seen the film enough times, you notice it. My pick for this would be Fran Drescher. Now, Fran Drescher actually makes her on-screen debut in a short scene early on in this film when she banters with John Travolta. She's got the big hair. She's got the New York accent. It's a real funny moment, and she has real presence. She definitely nails the look and voice of a Queen's princess from the 1970s. 
And say what you want about her title character for The Nanny, the TV show from the 90s, but Drescher has always been a gifted comedian. Her sass in this small role stands in stark contrast to Gorney's labored performance. This film could have used more Fran. Bottom line. Are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? <laughs> well, are you? Are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? Hey, you never made it in a bed. <laughs> that brings us to the next category, and that would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or the moment that best describes this film. If you're looking to sell somebody on this film, this is what you show them. Now, for me, it's tempting it's really tempting to choose the you should be dancing solo dance moment as that might still be the most iconic moment to come from this film. But with regards to which moment comes off as the most timeless, I would say that would have to be Tony and Stephanie's first dance together with the camera zeroed in on them waltzing together around the studio to more than a woman. It's a genuinely touching and romantic moment and it represents Tony at his most aspirational. That would be my trailer moment. Now that brings us to the final category, MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Come on. Travolta, Travolta, Travolta. This is his movie. And he literally destroys almost everyone else who shares the screen with him. If you can go back to this time when this movie came out, he was unavoidable. He was on the cover of Time and People. He was everywhere. There's a reason John Travolta still to this day 40 plus years later, is still a household name. It's because of his role in this movie. Yeah, I know Grease, Grease, yeah, Grease is fine, but this is the movie that defines him. Pulp Fiction is great, don't get me wrong, even better movie. But this is the role that defines him. He defines his role. He is the MVP of this movie without a doubt. And that brings me to my final rating for the film. Now, this is going to come off as revisionism a bit, but bear with me. If I were to rate the PG version of this film, the one I grew up watching, I would rate it four and a half stars out of five. Now, if I were to rate the R-rated original version of this film, I would rate it three and a half stars out of five. This is just my personal preference. I'm not trying to diminish the original film, but the fact remains both of these versions were released in theaters. The PG version came out a few months after because the film and the soundtrack was such a phenomenon that the studio and the director, they wanted kids to be able to see it. So they released the PG version of it. That's the version I grew up with, and I just have such a fondness for it. It's my personal preference. If you can find this film in the PG version, I would recommend it. But regardless, it's a great film. It's a memorable film and Right now, you could check it out on Paramount Plus where it's streaming, where I believe actually you'll probably more likely find the R-rated version. If you want to find the PG version, it's probably still playing on cable. It might even still be on physical media. But regardless, I recommend this film. And that ends this episode. And please subscribe to Living for the Cinema on all platforms where podcasts are available. Also, visit our new Facebook page, Living for the Cinema Podcast. Stay tuned and join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.